If you have your Bibles, I want you to open it to the very first book of the Bible. It's the book of Genesis, chapter 6. Genesis, chapter 6. And as you're uh, turning to that particular passage, uh, I want us to talk some about images. We talked about the images of the church and, and today, and I want to look at something called about the images of salvation. And when you think of the word image, an image is a mental representation. So when you, you think of an image, it's a mental representation of, of something else. Uh, just, just help me here. For instance, Birmingham. When you think about the city Birmingham, if, if somebody could, could ask you, okay, give me an image. When you see this image, you immediately think of Birmingham. What, what would be one of the images that you would think of? Vulcan. Vulcan. And depending on which side, it would depend on the image that you, that you've got. Okay. So if you're in Homewood, <laughs> not a really good image, but, uh, yeah, Vulcan. Okay. You think of Vulcan. Another one? Do what? Steel mills, like the Sloss Furnace, steel mills. Uh, I know growing up, uh, Legion Field, uh, you, you think about those are images of the city. And, and so when you say the city or you say that image, you think, of, you think of Birmingham. Now, if I came to you and I said, okay, salvation, Christianity, when you think about Christianity, you think about salvation, what are the first two images that pop into your head? First one would be what? The cross, and the second would be empty tomb. Cross, empty tomb. But it's interesting because in Scripture, those are important, but there are other images that drive us to salvation, that help us to get a great picture of what salvation is all about. And some of those are, are in, the, uh, in the Old Testament. And so today I want to look at one of those images, and it's the image of Noah's Ark. And it's only right that I would preach some on Noah's Ark because I don't know if you've heard, there's a movie um, out there called Noah. And there's all kind of repercussions. And there are people that love it and people that loathe it. And, um, and, and you can read ad nauseum on what different people think about it. And so um, it's one of the top grossing movies of the year. And so it's caused a, a whole lot of, uh, a whole lot of uh, discussion. Now, let me just kind of help you with this. How many of you have ever read a book and you love the book and then you heard that there was going to be a movie made of that book and you got so excited and you couldn't wait to go to the movie and then when you went to the movie and then you came walking out of the movie, the first comment you made was what? One as good as the book, right? I've, I hear that all the time. Now, usually I had not read a book and I went to a movie, and I enjoyed the movie, and I walked out only to be deluged by those that say, one is good as a book, one is good as a book, one is good as a book. And it's because they didn't pursue the characters like we thought they would. They kind of changed a few things here and there, and it just, it just wasn't good as a book. Second thing, how many of you have ever had uh, like a historical event that you were either a part of and witnessed, or else you researched it? And you really knew all about it. And then you heard there was going to be a movie that was made of it. And you couldn't wait to go see that movie because you said, man, I love this story. And then you go and you go to the movie. And then when you walk out of the movie, you're a little disappointed. Because you say, I know the facts of this story. And I just don't think some of that stuff was correct. Have you ever done that? 
you know, one of the great movies of all time. I mean, remember the Titans, okay? Y'all with me on this? You know, remember the Titans. Now, if some of you don't know that movie, you are just lost. Come on, you got to know that movie. You know, remember the Titans. I mean, this thing came out a few years ago, and, and it was the story of, uh, in Virginia, 1971, all the school integration and, and all the racial uh, upheaval that was happening. And, and there at that one school, T.C. Williams, they focused in on how this would this city could handle the uh, integration and how this particular football team could handle it. And all of a sudden, now they have a black coach and then they've got a white assistant coach and they've got a black school coming in with a white school and then the players trying to figure out who's going to start and who's going to play and all this racial problem. But then they put it together and they began to win their games and they get all the way to the state championship game. Oh, man. And you're cheering them and you're loving this story. And then the 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 main character, Gary Bertier, the linebacker, all-American high school guy. Man, after the uh, semifinal game, they won. They're celebrating. He gets in his car and he starts to drive off and he gets broadsided by a car in a tragic accident that he's paralyzed from the waist down. And everybody comes to visit him in the hospital bed and, and he said, man, guys, you know, go out there and win that last game for me. And so when they get ready to play for the state championship, how in the world are they going to win that game without Gary Bertier, their starting linebacker? But man, he's back in the hospital and he's cheering them on. And sure enough, they're losing seven to three and it comes down near the end of the game and the other team's got the ball and this guy breaks through, looks like he's going to score a touchdown. And big Julius, the defensive end, runs him down, strips the ball. There's a fumble, there's a pileup. Titans ball. Yes, you're all excited in the theater. And we got one more chance. We've got just um, 10, 13 seconds, whatever it is, to, to be able to make it happen. We got one play. And so they're saying, what are you going to call? Hey, Rev, used to be starting quarterback, was injured. They finally brought him back in and says, got good legs? I got good legs. Here we go. We're going to do a reverse to Rev. Okay. So they hand off. They go one way. Then they reverse it to Rev. He goes around the corner. gets a block. Gets another block. And, you, and you're counting the yardage as you see him run. The 50, the 40, the 30, the 20, the 10. Touchdown! 10 to 7, game over, state championship. Oh, God. It just didn't happen that way. <laughs> I mean, it was sad with, with Gary Bertier, but Gary Bertier played in that game. He played in that game, and they won the state championship. And they had a banquet weeks later to recognize all the team and give out awards. And it was a Driving back from that is when he got hit. And yes, he was paralyzed, but he did play this state championship game. You say, yeah, but what about the game, man? 10 to, 10 to 7. I hate to break this to you. You know what the score was of the championship game? 27 to nothing. <laughs> and the team they played, you know what total offense they got? Negative five yards. They dominated them. Now, wouldn't you love to go home to the movie and they said, now the state final game, <sighs> 27 to nothing. That's pretty exciting over there. But was it more exciting to see Rev score that touchdown on the very last play? Yeah, you bet. Well, let's just change a few things so we can make the movie a little bit more exciting and a little bit more interesting. Well, when you think about Noah's Ark, think about the movie Noah, it is both an historical event that took place, and it's also a story that's included in a book. And as many movies do, they came and took some liberties, took some licenses, and made some changes in order for the movie to be able to be something that you might enjoy for a little over a couple of hours, and also 
and lead you into some uh, different understandings of characters and some things like that. So, uh, so the question is, is how do we respond to, to something like that as a movie? Well, I, I think the best way that, to respond is uh, I saw an ad in the New York Times. And so, Gary, if you've got that slide, there was an ad that was placed in the New York Times for the movie. And if you look at it, in the theaters Friday, buy your advance tickets, movie.com, Russell Crowe, Noah. And what do you see at the very top? Read the story on the Bible app or Bible.com. I like that. Every one of you on your cell phone probably have that Bible app, okay, you version on there, to where you can click on and you can, you know, just read right from your phone. Now, don't go and start reading all that stuff on your phone now, okay, stay with me. But you can go on there and, and you can read the story, okay? And, and, you know, and you've got an app in which you could even listen <clears throat> to it, to where they'll read it to you. I did that. Genesis 6 through 9, it takes 12 and a half minutes. 12 and a half minutes, you can see the whole story. Or you could go and watch a two and a half hour movie, it's up to you. No, no, it, it's, it's 12 and a half minutes. And so how would I respond? I would say that if someone came to me and said, hey, I want to talk about the movie Noah, and, uh, and if you had seen it, which I did, Janice and I went and saw it so I could know what I was talking about, you know what I would do? I would say, I'd love to talk to you about it. I'd tell you what I'd like for you to do. I said, I want you to read the story in the Bible, the original. Only take you 12 and a half minutes, 12 and a half minutes, chapter six through nine, the book of Genesis, and let them read it. Then after they read it, and then you can get into a discussion about, so what did you see that was different there versus maybe what you saw in the movie? You say, well, Danny, what differences would there be? Well, you got to stick around in the sermon, okay? We'll get to that uh, a little bit later. But let's, i tell you what, what we'd like to do is, more importantly, let's just take a look at this story. It's an amazing event that took place in history. And so you start it in Genesis chapter 6, and the very first thing that you'll see is man's wickedness. And it was a wickedness that was manifested in violence. And it was, the world was at a horrible place. If you look in Genesis chapter 6, verse 5, it says, Then the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. Now look at verse 11. Now the earth was corrupt in God's sight, and the earth was filled with violence. This is what was going on. Sin had just pervaded everything. And, you know, it started with Adam and Eve, and then when the sin happened there in the garden, and then all of a sudden you had Cain who murdered Abel, and then it just grew and grew and grew. And so now it has just pervaded everything. And so this sin has now manifested itself in the violence. And see, oftentimes we will read this, and we just don't, we just can't take in, what does that mean? What do you mean that's just manifested itself like that? Well, I tell you what, I went on a, a tour of reading books that just, were difficult books to read. A few years ago, I read the book Bonhoeffer. And so I'm reading Bonhoeffer. I'm reading about what the Germans did during World War II and in the prisoner of war camps and, the, and, and just the inhumane things they did to people and to prisoners and to the Jews and to others. Oh, it was hard. So then I put that book down. Then I read Unbroken about Louis Zamberini who's a, a fighter pilot who crashes and then he's uh, ar ar arrested and taken as a prisoner in a POW camp and saw what the Japanese did to him during all those years and these other prisoners. He was, it, was, it was horrible. 
I'm just sitting there thinking, how wicked could man be? And then I can look back and say, well, you know, that was all the way back in the 1940s. We're so much better now. And then I pick up the book, The Insanity of God. And as I read through the book of The Insanity of God, and he talks about the persecution of Christians, and he begins to look in Russia and look in Asia and look in Africa, and you see what people have done over these last 20, 30 years of, of, of Christians and how they have treated them, and, and again, the inhumane things. You just, you think in your mind, there's no way I could even think to do some of the things that they have done to them. That's the wickedness of man, and that is sin. And then we sit there and say, well, thank goodness that's over there, and it's not here. Then I'm, 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 I'm digging through a book that is about as depressing as can be, Say, Danny, get some good stuff, man. <laughs> and it's a book about a major city in our country. And, and it talks about uh, all the, um, the lack of integrity and, and how there were just, there's no ethics there and all the corruption and all the degrading things and, and no respect for life. A city right here in the United States. And it mirrors what's happening in other cities all around our country. It's just hard to read. It's a picture of when you take out grace and love and God and just put it to the side, this is what happens. Wickedness and sin fills that void. And it's happening here. It's happening in our country. It's happening in our city. And so you read those things and you realize sin is real. And sin in each of our hearts can bring out such wickedness. And this is what was going on on the earth. And it says in, in Genesis that it was everywhere. And it had corrupted all of creation. And so then all of a sudden we get to the second point, and that is God's judgment. And in God's judgment, when you take a look in verse 5, it says, The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. God saw. I want you right now to look at that part and realize it means that we serve a personal God. He is not some detached higher power. He is a personal God. And it says God saw, and look what he saw. He saw his creation marred and ruined. You know the last time in scripture you saw the word God saw? It was Genesis one thirty one. after he finished all creation. And when he finished all of creation, he looked and God saw it and he said it was what, choir? It was what? very good, right? He said, I looked at it, it was good, it was very good. And now all of a sudden we come to Genesis chapter 6, and he looks at it, and all he sees is there's wickedness. Every intention of the thoughts of the heart was only evil continually. God sees our world the way it is. But the second thing is that God is pained by our sins. He is pained by our sins. Look what he says in, um, in verse 6. And the Lord was sorry that he had made man on the earth, and it grieved him to his heart. This is God grieved to his heart. Again, this is not just some impersonal tyrant sitting up here. This is a personal God who says that sin grieved his heart. That word grieve means to pierce a heart. And it shows there's an emotional anguish of God. And he's not showing remorse over making humanity. He's showing pain over what humanity has done. And you see, everything is so filled with violence, and it's so tragic on there. He's looking and saying, it was not an error for me to make man. The error is what man has made of himself. And so with all of this, 
he experienced this heart-piercing tragedy as he saw that what was taking place with the wickedness and the sin of the world. His handiwork had been marred and ruined. And so God is affected by what people make of themselves. It breaks his heart. And so as God is sitting here, seeing our world, seeing our sin, being pained over our sin, we need to understand this flood narrative is not about some angry, tyrant God. This flood narrative is about a God that's grieving, a God whose heart is broken because of the sin of men and women. And third of all is God judges wickedness. He judges wickedness. Look what it says in verse 7. He comes right down and says, So the Lord said, I will blot out man from whom I have created from the face of the land, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens, for I am sorry that I have made him. I will blot him out. That suggests a movement that wipes clean or just blots it out completely. The flood was designed to destroy every living thing. Full destruction was to be executed. Nothing was to be spared. The advancement of sin had reached its apex and it had permeated every corner of civilization. You could say that sin had reached its critical mass and divine response was now inevitable. Dr. Ken Matthews, a member of our church, he's a professor at Beeson Divinity School, says it in a great way. He says, God is not a dispassionate accountant overseeing the books of human endeavor. Rather, he makes a personal decision out of sorrowful loss to judge Noah's wicked generation. It's a personal decision out of sorrowful loss. God's judgment. But then we see God's mercy. And whenever you look at this story of the flood and what we call Noah's Ark, we see the wickedness of man. We see God's judgment. But in the midst of this, you see God's mercy. And it starts in verse 8. And it says, but... Out of all the bad things he saw, but Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. Some of your translations may say grace. Noah found grace. Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. What a contrast. When God looked, and when God looked and saw the world, that generation, he was sorrowful and he was grieved. But when he saw Noah, he gave him grace and favor. He was looking for someone, somewhere there to be, someone that could, that could raise up, someone out there. And sure enough, it's Noah. And then he talks about Noah. Look in verse 9. And he says, these are the generations of Noah. Noah was a righteous man, a righteous man. It meant that he had a right relationship with God. Chapter 7, verse 1, he says, go into the ark, you and all your household, for I have seen that you are a righteous before me in this generation. He was a righteous man. He was right in his relationship with God. Then it says that Noah was blameless in his generation. Now that word blameless does not mean that he was perfect. But it says blameless in his generation. It meant that, that he, was, uh, he had more character and integrity than anybody else in that generation, which is a low bar in that generation. Okay? But he was a righteous man. He was blameless. He was a man of character. He was a man of integrity. He stood out above that generation. He did not stoop to that generation. Keep that in mind. As our culture gets more and more wicked, we are not to stoop down to that level. We are to 
continue to stay true to God's word and to be men and women who are righteous, who are blameless, men and women of character, men and women of integrity. And then it said he walked with God. Noah walked with God. There's only other, one other man that it said they walked with God leading up to this point. And that was a man by the name of Enoch, who was his great-grandfather. How about that for a legacy? Enoch was his great-grandfather. And he walked with God. Now the sudden you get to Noah, and it says he walked with God. And guess what? God found him. He was walking with him. He had a relationship with him. He was living according to obedience to God. It's a reminder that no matter how sinful a generation is, God is seeking those who will live righteous lives and, live and receive the favor of God and be used by God to accomplish a God-sized assignment. Out of everything, all those generations that were there on earth, there was only one man that found favor, and that man was Noah. And God picked Noah. He walked with Noah, and he said, Noah, I've got you a God-sized assignment. And he told him his assignment is that he would build an ark. Most people, when you began to do all the uh, timelines, feel like it took them anywhere from 55 to 70 years to build the ark. And so over all those years, he and his sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth, building that ark, he says, this is an assignment that I've got for you. I've found favor with you. Now, I don't know what God's got in your life, but I believe that every one of us, God wants us to do a God-sized assignment. And a number of you are missing out on that because you're not walking with him. You're not living a life of righteousness, not living a life that's blameless. And yet, you cry out and you say, God, why don't you use me more? Why can't I, I do something great for you? And what God's looking for is for you to walk with him. Noah did that. God gave him this incredible God-sized assignment. And so that's where you move into the final point, and that is God's purpose and plan. Anytime you read through Scripture, I want you to always keep this in mind. God has a purpose. God has a plan. Nothing takes him by accident. He doesn't just do anything uh, helter-skelter, nothing harem-scarum out here, uh, doesn't do anything on a whim. There is a purpose and there is a plan. And the purpose and the plan is found in chapter 6, verses 18 through 22. And for any of you that are going to see the movie, and for any of you that want to engage with people who have seen the movie, this is where you, a place you want to camp. Verses 18 through 22. This is God talking to, to, uh, to Noah. He has told Noah exactly <clears throat> the dimensions of the boat of what he should build. And then he says, but I will establish my covenant with you. And you shall come into the ark, you, your sons, your wife, and your, what does the next thing say? Your son's wives with you. You, your wife, your three sons, and their wives. That's eight people, okay? To come into the ark. And of every living thing, of all flesh, you shall bring two of every sort into the ark to keep them alive with you. And they shall be male and female. 
and of the birds according to their kinds, and of the animals according to their kinds, and of every creeping thing of the ground according to his kind, its kind, two of every sort shall come into you to keep them alive. Also take with you every sort of food that is eaten and store it up, and it shall serve as food for you and for them. And Noah did this. He did all that God commanded him. Noah did all that God commanded him. Now, what did God do? He told Noah. He didn't tell him, hey, just build this boat. We're going to see what's going to happen. He says, I am making a covenant with you. You, your wife, your family. There's an agreement that we will have. You have been chosen, and we have this covenant. Now, if you've not seen the movie, this is what we call spoiler alert, okay? However, if you decide to see the movie, this will keep you from getting angry in the movie because the pastor's already said something about it. And I laughed with Janice because when we went to the movie, right before it got ready to start, I leaned over to her and I said, I promise you I will not get upset at anything that happens in this movie. <laughs> and, and she said, thank you. And it was good uh, that we made it through the whole movie. So um, in the movie, one of the uh, decisions that were made to make a change to the biblical story affects really about everything else, a, a lot of things that happen afterwards. And what that is, is that um, there were no wives for the sons. Uh, one son was really young, another one may have been late teenager, maybe early 20, and then there was another one that was older. But he did have a girl that he was going uh, to marry, but they felt that she was barren. So getting on the ark, there would have been three sons, one who had a wife who was barren, and the other two didn't have wives. And there's no one in his wife, and they were moving on up in years. So your thought goes is that, well, we're going to be saved through the water, but once we get on earth, we're just going to live our lives and die, and that's going to be it for mankind because there's no reproduction that will take place. So our goal is we got to get the animals safe, and they will come to the new earth, and they'll be able to multiply, and everything will be great with earth and with, with the animals. And that's in, in Noah's head, which if you were sitting on a boat and there was no hope of your family reproducing or multiplying, you would probably have those same thoughts that we're here and we're just, we're just going to ride this out and then we're going to get on dry land and over a few years we'll just die. And, and what that does is that begins to affect actions that take place from that, from that point forward. Now, just to help you out, as you get to the end of the movie, I think it all kind of works out. You'll have to see. But, um, but still, that, that's a huge change because that's not what the Bible says. The Bible says that when they got on the ark, it was the sons and their wives. And then when they get off the ark, God tells them, you be fruitful, multiply, and uh, this is a new start. I'm starting over. Now, your lineage still comes all the way back to Adam, and you just trace it all the way back down. And Adam, you got Enoch, you got Methuselah, you got Lamech, your father, and on and on and on, and that, line, that lineage will continue. But everyone else has been wiped out. It's going to go through, through you right here. The reason is, is because God has a purpose, and God has a plan. 
And his purpose in the ark was to be able to save this family so he could start over. And he was doing the same thing with the animals. A lot of animals got killed too, but they saved a male and female from all different species so that they could also begin to reproduce and, and fill the earth. Now, there's something interesting in any movie that you watch. You can always find some things that, that, are, that are good or that would kind of at least get you to, um, to sit up and think. And there's a scene in the movie that is pretty poignant in that right before the ark is almost completed and um, Noah's going into the city and he sees all the wickedness that is going on. It's just all the wickedness. And, and, and he's looking at it and he's seeing it and he's seeing all these people and he's seeing the temptation and the wickedness. And he walks away from that and when he walked away from it, he realized that inside me is that same wickedness. I am just as wicked. You know, it says in the scripture that I'm righteous, I'm blameless, I walk with God, but even though I'm walking with God, there's still within me that sin nature. And there's still that wickedness that's in me. And he makes a statement, I don't deserve to live. I, need to, I, I should be destroyed by God's judgment just as everyone else is. And you know what, folks? That is true. Every one of us. Every one of us is that we deserve destruction. We deserve to die in our sins and spend eternity separated from God. There's nothing we've done to earn salvation. But that's where the mercy comes in. Is because God loves us so much that he says, yes, Danny, you are a sinner. Yes, you mess up. But you know what? I love you so much I've sent my son to pay the penalty for your sins. And I want you to accept that gift of grace and be a part of my family and my child. And so even though I deserve destruction, God offers mercy and he offers grace. And that's what God was offering. And he was offering that to Noah. And he's offering that to his family. And he said, I want you to get on into, into the ark. And so he had the plan, and that was we load the animals in. And then I want to load you and your family and the eight of you. Come on into the ark. And then as they come into the ark, I want you to see another very important verse. And it's found in chapter 7. In chapter 7, verse 16. If you look in 7, 16, at the end of that verse, it says, As they all went in, as God had commanded him, and the Lord shut him in. The Lord shut him in. Who closed the door of the ark? God did. He did it one time. Once they were in the ark, God shut the door. The picture of that is that God has the last word on judgment. God has the last word on judgment. He will be the one that will determine when it's time for judgment. And once he closed the door, that was it. The ark is a beautiful picture, is a beautiful image of salvation. God called Noah and his family to enter the ark and to be saved from the coming destruction. They accepted his invitation. They entered the ark. 
And they entered the ark through the one door that was available. There was only one door on the ark. You look at it, how God told them how to build it, there was just one door. They walked through that one door, and when they walked through that one door, they were on the ark, and they were safe from the coming destruction that was coming their way. And when the rains came, and when the judgment of God came, just as they were getting ready to come, God closes the door to assure their safety and prevented anyone else from entering. The time for repentance had run out, and now it was time for judgment. There was one door, there was one entryway to get into that ark for safety and to be saved. It's a beautiful picture of salvation in that there is one door, there is one way to be saved. Jesus said in John chapter 10, verse 9, I am the door, and if anyone enters by me, he will be saved. Jesus is that one door that gets us to be saved and to come into the presence of God and to be adopted into God's family. It's the one door. And so it's an invitation for any of us, for all of us, to go through that particular door. And that door is open. That door is open to you. And it's open to you that if you repent of your sins and then accept by grace and by faith the gift of Jesus Christ who died on that cross and three days later he rose from the dead giving us victory over sin and victory over death, that door is open for you to walk through. But I just want to be real straight with you. That door is open for you to walk through, but there will come a day when the Lord comes and he closes that door. And when he closes that door, it's not going to be open again until after the judgment. I mean, no one else will be able to get in. And that time will be here. Now, as we get ready to close, I want you to turn to Matthew, Matthew 24. Turn over to the New Testament, Matthew 24. Matthew 24. In Matthew 24, Jesus is talking about signs of the end of the age. Signs of the end of the age. And if you look in chapter 24, the 12th verse. In verse 12, it says this. And because lawlessness will be increased, the love of many will grow cold. That's all I want you to focus on. Lawlessness will increase. As judgment gets ready to come, as Jesus gets ready to come, the second coming, it says lawlessness will increase. Think that's happening? And love for others will grow cold. I am reading things that we are doing right now in our nation and around the world that will make you sick. How could we be so cold to do that? It's because lawlessness is increasing. So then what does Jesus say? If you turn the page... Verse 36 through 39. He says, but concerning that day and hour, exactly when Christ will come back again, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven nor the Son, but the Father only. As were the days of Noah, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. For as in those days before the flood, they were eating and drinking and marrying and giving in marriage until the day when Noah entered the ark. And they were unaware until the flood came and swept them all away. So will be the coming of the Son of Man. 
I don't want to be trite with you, but in essence, I could put it like this. Don't miss the boat. Don't miss the boat. The door is open. There is one door. It is Christ. And so now a lot of us have made that decision. We can say, well, I appreciate this message, and that's good stuff, and I'm so glad I'm, I'm in the ark. I know I'm there. I'm feeling good about that. Let me give you one last thing from the movie that will probably stay with you for a while. The door closes. The rains come. The water comes up from the deep, just like it says in Scripture. In the midst of that, the people that are left are trying to get to high ground. And as they're trying to climb up to the highest of ground, as the mother keeps rising, they are screaming. And they're screaming because they're scared. They're screaming they're going to die. And most likely, they're screaming for Noah to open the door and let me in. And there's a picture of him sitting there hearing all the screams, having a real difficult time, knowing that there's nothing he can do. Second Peter chapter 2, verse 5 said that Noah was a herald of righteousness, which means that while he was building that boat, he was sharing about the righteousness of God. He was trying to get people to accept him. He was trying to get people to accept what God was doing. And there was rejection after rejection after rejection. And finally there came to a point where there was no more preaching. And all he could do was sit in the boat, look at his family that was safe, and hear the screams of people who were lost and who were going to die, who were going to be separated for eternity. I need to ask you, Shades Mountain Baptist Church, when you walk through the streets of this city, when you walk down the halls of your school, when you jog around in your neighborhood, when you go around in your businesses, do you hear the screams of the people? Do you hear people that are screaming, saying there's got to be more than this? Do you hear the screams of the people who have no relationship with God whatsoever and who are lost in their sins? I hope that we hear those screams because when we hear those screams, there is something we can do because the door is not closed. The door is still open to the ark. And we need to tell others about the good news of Jesus Christ and then take one more voice that was screaming and bring it to a voice that's praising and singing hallelujah to God. That's what we're to do. The ark. It's an image of salvation. Make sure you've made that decision and you're on the ark. At the same time, Listen for those who have not made that decision, and let's bring them on with us. Let me ask you to bow your heads. Close your eyes for just a moment. Father, we thank you this day that um, early on in Scripture, you had a plan, really from the beginning of time, for salvation and for us to be with you and to have a relationship with you. I pray, Lord, that at this moment in this service, if there are those that you're touching their hearts that need to make that decision, that they would not put it off any longer. And that today would be the day of salvation for them. For it is in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.